Hi, David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice, and we extend our summer hiatus today with a reprise of our interview uh, in episode 102 with best-selling author Emily Bazelon, and she talked to me about her great new book called Charged, the new movement to transform American criminal justice and end mass incarceration. We had a great conversation, and it makes a really nice match to episode 99 with Miriam Krinsky, which we ran last week in another hiatus piece. Uh, Miriam Krinsky's work actually appears in Emily Bazelon's excellent new book. So I hope you liked the interview. We liked it a lot. Here it is. American prosecutors have always been powerful figures in our justice system. They decide the charges and offer the plea bargains, but our guest says that they have become far too powerful, resulting in mass incarceration and the wrecking of human lives over trivial offenses. Is it time to transform American prosecution? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome, everyone, to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your resident criminal justice geek and explainer of our troubled criminal justice system, and still so grateful for that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. In the almost five years since the events of the summer of 2014, the deaths of Eric Garner in Staten Island and Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, it may seem sometimes that not enough has changed. While surely there remains much to do by way of reform of the system, at least one thing, an important one, has changed a lot. Let me prompt you by giving you Two names. Think for a minute about who these people are. Timothy McGinty, Anita Alvarez. What do those two people have in common? Here's some audio to help you from The Grio and Black Talk Radio. Check it out. This past week, the city of Chicago showed what it means to stand up and do things your own way. It continued this week when fierce organizing on behalf of young activists led Chicago's top prosecutor, Anita Alvarez, to lose the Democratic primary after her handling of the Laquan McDonald shooting. Then you need to vote her out! Organizers knocked on doors, passing out literature and using the hashtag #BuyAnita to create awareness, making room for Ken Fox to win by a landslide. Kyle Yuga, County District Attorney Tim McGinty, lost his bid for re-election. McGinty is the prosecutor who went out of his way to ensure that Cleveland officers involved in the killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice would not be indicted. He lost his re-election bid to Cleveland's new prosecutor, Michael Malley, who amassed the support of 55% of voters compared to 44% for McGinty. Both Alvarez and McGinty went down to defeat in what should have been easy-peasy re-election bids after both played roles in refusing to indict police officers who killed young blacks seconds after arriving on the scene of an incident. Those involved the killings of Laquan McDonald in Chicago, that was Anita Alvarez, and Tamir Rice in Cleveland, involving Timothy McGinty. And now, 
a small but increasing number of American prosecutors are facing opposition in elections, some for the first time in many years, and we see lawyers with a much different outlook on the criminal justice system. Uh, We see them beginning to assume places as head prosecutors in office. Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, a former defense attorney and civil rights lawyer who used to sue the police, is probably just the most prominent example, but certainly not the only one. It used to be that most incumbent American prosecutors were re-elected 95% of the time. 85% faced no opposition at all. Our guest today is going to talk to us about her new book, which tells us what's behind these changes and why this movement to replace the old guard to transform American prosecution must continue. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, a best-selling author and a co-host of the Political Gab Fest podcast. She is the Truman Capote Fellow in Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. You may remember her first book, Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy, published in 2014. Ms. Bazelon has been a guest on many shows on National Public Radio and on the PBS NewsHour. She has spoken and debated widely in forums such as South by Southwest, the Aspen Ideas Festival, and the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. Her new book is called Charged, The Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Emily Bazelon, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. The project of this book, and it's a very ambitious project, is nothing less than transforming American prosecution, as you say in your subtitle. Uh, And in the introduction, you say that American prosecution really sits at a crossroads. What exactly does that mean? What What are you saying by that? Well, for the last 40 years, American prosecutors have really contributed to mass incarceration. They got more power, um, and we can talk about how that happened, and they mostly used it to put more people in jail or prison at a time when they thought that was the politically advantageous thing to do. In the last few years, however, a movement to elect a different kind of prosecutor has sprung up and really spread to a number of cities and counties across the country. And the prosecutors who are being elected on the sort of shoulders of that movement are making a different kind of promise. They're talking about reducing the use of jail and prison, even making it a last resort. And so that's the sort of crossroads that I had in mind. So at that crossroads, you're noticing uh, as we look back, as we see our present even, you're saying that power has been used in ways that actually have built, uh, bolstered uh, mass incarceration. Uh, How has that happened? How have prosecutors contributed to that? Because I bet a lot of them would say to you, hey, we just prosecute what people bring in the door, what the police give us. So how is that our fault? Right. Yes. I mean, one thing about the criminal justice system is every actor can pass responsibility off onto another actor or the system as a whole. But, you know, let's go back to the 1970s um, when the incarceration rate in the United States was the same as it is now and was then in countries like Scandinavia. It was one fifth of the number of people in jail and prison that we have now. And then there's a crime wave and a push to 
ratchet up sentences um, across the country. States change their laws and they put in place mandatory minimum sentences for a whole host of charges. And when the state legislatures and Congress are doing that, they're talking about harsher punishment. They're talking about, you know, preventing this crime wave. What they don't say is that when you have mandatory prison, you take discretion away from judges and you give it to prosecutors. The discretion doesn't disappear from the system. It just moves. And the way that that happens is that the charge that a prosecutor brings becomes a determining factor, right? So if you have a mandatory sentence for um, a particular drug offense or the possession of a weapon, then once the prosecutor decides to bring that charge, stick with it, that's the sentence the defendant received. And we didn't really talk about that idea that we were giving prosecutors all these power, all this power, and in a lot of ways elevating them above judges um, at this time when we were making this big shift. We are still living with that reality of prosecutorial power, even though now we're at a moment where crime has significantly declined across the country. So we've got the power, the decisional power, really shifting to prosecutors uh, by virtue of these uh, these changes in sentencing that take away the power from the judge. So I like the way you put that. You say that the power or the the decision making doesn't disappear. It just changes location in the system. I always thought of that as I, I would envision in my mind those those balloons that you you you, bu- you blow up. At, at a kid's party and they tie them into shapes. If you squeeze a balloon, the air doesn't go away. It just moves. And that sounds to me like what you're saying about the power in the system just shifting places. Yes, exactly. So I like your image. The image that I use in my book is a triangle. So we think of the criminal justice system as a triangle in which the judge, the neutral arbiter, sits at the top And then there at the bottom, the two corners are the prosecutor and the defense lawyer. And we think of them as on an even playing field and the judge as being in charge. That's right. It's the adversary system. That's the setup, right? Right. Except it doesn't exist anymore, really, meaningfully. Um, In fact, what has happened is that the prosecutor has moved up and the judge has moved down. The defense lawyer is still where he or she always was. And the result of that is that you have prosecutors whose job it is to win convictions as well as to be ministers of justice. But, you know, who are, as you're saying, they're the adversary against the defendant. They're the ones who are really making a lot of the key decisions along the way. And that is not the way the American system of justice was designed. No, not the way it was designed at all. When you have what we call this adversary system, what you're describing is a system completely out of balance, one in which one of the sides presenting evidence is effectively elevated against every other actor in the system. And I'm guessing that because... Uh, prosecutors begin to accumulate a great amount of power at that point, you probably see other abuses as well, because we know that when there is power and it is unchecked, abuses sometimes follow. Is that true in this case? Did, Did prosecutorial misconduct go up too? Well, absolutely, you're right about the abuse of power, and that is an issue. Prosecutorial misconduct is a problem. Um, One of the other factors contributing to it is um, a couple of Supreme Court decisions that gave prosecutors what's called absolute immunity from suit. 
So if you're a cop, you have something called qualified immunity, which mostly protects you but means you can still get sued for some things you do on the job. If you're a prosecutor, no matter, you know, you can hide evidence, you can burn up evidence. If you did that as part of your job, you cannot personally be sued. And then the Supreme Court also made it much harder to sue the whole office for a prosecutor, too. And so that's another contributing factor to misconduct. I think it's important, though, you know, it's really important to shine a light on misconduct. It's also important to realize that you don't have to break the rules as a prosecutor and commit an abuse of power to have the um, the increasing power of prosecutors be a problem. You know that old saying that, like, it's what's legal that is the biggest problem or the sure. biggest abuse? That Absolutely. is true, and, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, uh, when we see uh, terrible, egregious uh, misconduct, uh, by prosecutors or any other actors for that matter. Uh, that's always easy to point out. But what is so troubling, I think, to so many people is we have a number of types of prosecutorial behavior that is quite common and also perfectly legal. Maybe give us an example of something like that. Well, one thing that you see a lot of now is um, what I would call overcharging. So the more leverage a prosecutor has, the better, the more likely to get a defendant to plea bargain, right? And plea bargaining, which means like haggling over the resolution of a case to get a conviction, that happens outside the public eye. We're talking about prosecutors and defense lawyers like whispering in the hallway or talking on the phone, not something that's in front of a judge or on the public record. And so plea bargaining is now determining, um, you know, upwards of 90% of the cases that end in a conviction. It really is the system. We are not a system of trials anymore. Um, even though that's like our sort of image in the movies and TV of American justice, it's not the reality. That and is so, so part- true. Yeah, we, we, we'll discuss this in class sometimes, and uh, my students are very curious about how trials operate. And I said 90% of the time, this isn't reality. More than 90% that's in right. some jurisdictions. Right. Trials are great drama, but they're like an endangered species in America right now. Endangered Um, species, yes. (laughs) Right? A very rare kind of bird. And the thing about plea bargaining is um, the prosecutor has, again, all the power, often has a menu of choices about what to charge. If you charge something where you can um, hit the defendant with a lot of prison, then you're really making it difficult for that person to risk going to trial. It's like a big roll of the dice. And so this is a perfectly legal way in which prosecutors um, exert their power to the to the detriment of a lot of defendants. So it sounds like you're describing a, uh, a system in which uh, there is almost no accountability for prosecutors. You said absolute immunity. Uh, which uh, we've done some shows here about qualified immunity for police, as you were mentioning, and we know what, how powerful a barrier that can be to c- accountability. There is no accountability f- uh, for prosecutors under absolute immunity. Is there any accountability at all for errors, overreach, whatever you want to call it, in the system as it exists now? There are two answers to that question. Um, one kind of more technical answer has to do with Um, the the, the bar and the disciplinary process for abuses. So there are cases in which prosecutors face ethical charges for committing misconduct. So I wrote about a case in Memphis in which a prosecutor failed to disclose evidence that's required under what's called the Brady rule. This is the rule that says that 
you have a constitutional right to see evidence if it could help exonerate you. And since the state, since the police collect that evidence and the prosecutors have it, the state has to turn it over. So I watched an ethical proceeding against a prosecutor who had failed to turn over evidence. But you know what? He won because it's very hard in a lot of states for local bar committees to really um, exercise this professional disciplinary authority. Um, You know, I watched these three local Memphis lawyers, and it was pretty clear that they did not want to hold another local Memphis lawyer who they knew um, socially uh, accountable. So that's one sort of possible route to accountability that is really very rarely used. The more meaningful one is voters. Um, In almost every state, we elect the district attorney. And so his or her power is our power. And if there are abuses committed by that office, that's something that voters can address directly. That's accountability uh, with democracy, and that still is something that we're uh, that we're able to do. And uh, we're going to talk some about how it's actually coming into its own. Uh, but the first one really is kind of troubling: the idea that the bar and disciplinary procedures for lawyers doesn't really work. I, I love this because it parallels so incredibly well the discussion that we've been having in this country about uh, making police officers accountable. And there's been a lot of discussion about, well, you know, the local DA really can't investigate the police. They're just too close. They work together all the time. This sounds like a perfectly parallel situation in the disciplinary process for lawyers. I think you're totally right about that. And, you know, you write about and study the police and you see that close partnership between police and prosecutors, right? I mean, people often say that prosecutors just, it's at their political peril to do anything That's to right. make the police mad at them, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of times in the system we're talking about, it's lawyers who have a disincentive, right, to really sit in judgment of each other. And this can extend to judges, too. Um, you know, I talked to one judge in California who'd seen right in front of his eyes, like, what everyone agreed, what he had called on the record, an egregious example of prosecutorial misconduct. And I said to him, okay, like, did you report it to the California bar? And he said, no, like, I don't want to play that role. And in fact, he didn't even, when there was a disciplinary proceeding brought against this prosecutor, this judge wanted to make it very clear to me that he only testified against the prosecutor because he had received a subpoena. In other words, he did not want to be seen in any way as, you know, crusading against the prosecutor or really taking any steps on his own. It was really striking. Well, that is that is again, you know, I'm pulled back to the world of police and we all want to talk about the blue wall of silence and how they won't testify against each other. This is a a far deeper problem than that because it goes across all kinds of professions and callings and jobs. It isn't just the police, as people like to think. This is, uh, the the parallels are so striking to me, I got to say. Let's uh, take a quick break here. We're with Emily Bazelon. Her new book is called Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Hi, David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice, and we're with Emily Bazelon. She's a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and her new book is called Charged, The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Uh, when we were talking just a minute ago, uh, we were talking about the system, how it works and doesn't. I want to come right down to the some of the cases you used in your book because you made some in- amazing decisions about how to focus this whole story and tell your readers what's really going on. Uh, you talked about two individuals in their cases in particular. First was Kevin, a young man in Brooklyn, New York, and he was charged with possession of a gun. Why do you, what, what drew you to that story? Well, we were talking earlier about mandatory sentences and all the power they give prosecutors. So Kevin's case was a perfect example of that because in New York State, if you're caught with a gun and it's loaded uh, and you don't have a permit for it, even if you have no criminal record, you're not doing anything with that gun, even if it's in your house, you can face a three-and-a-half-year mandatory prison sentence under the maximum charge the prosecutor can bring. Um, and so I watched Kevin go through this process um, of getting caught with a gun. He said it wasn't his gun. It belonged to a friend. The cops had a search warrant to search this friend's apartment. Um, Kevin picked up the gun in kind of a moment of an act of loyalty toward his friends, which he was then deeply paying for. Right. He, um, he wanted and, to protect his friend who would have gotten a big, big charge on that. Exactly. And I was really interested, you know, we're talking about um, teenagers, young people in Brownsville, Brooklyn, a low-income, mostly black neighborhood. Um, and I was just interested in this question of, like, who has guns in Brooklyn? Um, why do they have them? And are they really different from teenagers or young people in other parts of the country where, like, the National Rifle Association is strong and would be there to protect their rights? Um, the NRA was nowhere to be found in the Brooklyn gun court, this yeah, specialized court where. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I watched Kevin's case for a couple of years as it proceeded through the system. Um, and there were sort of two things in particular that interested me. So one was this, is this problem of racial disparity, which I know you also think about a lot. Um, black people in the United States are no more likely to have a gun than white people. In fact, they're less likely, but they're four times as likely to get arrested for having a gun. That's right. And what I saw on these benches in gun court was just like a lot of low income black people. Um, and it just started to, I started to wonder if this was like a reincarnation of the war on drugs, but like from a sort of liberal gun control point of view. Um, so that was one set of questions about Kevin's story. Uh-huh. And then the other, the other thing that deeply interested me about it was that in this Brooklyn gun court, there's an escape hatch. If you're under the age of 23, you can agree to plead guilty. So you have prison time hanging over your head and then try to get into what's called a diversion program. Um, And in this case, that program meant that you had a year where you would meet regularly with a social worker. You had to either get a job or work on your education. Um, You had to have a curfew. You had to do drug testing. And and so over the course of the year, the idea was that this program was going to help you turn your life around. So, you know, I had this sort of the great 
for me, joy of long-term reporting where you get to see someone's, the arc of someone's story develop over time. Right. And that makes a lot of sense as a storyteller. Um, and you're one of the best out there when we're talking about the legal system. Uh, just for, so folks know, the idea of a diversion program is to take people out of the system to get them away from the penalties and the incarceration and so forth to divert their cases and typically don't qualify for that unless you're you know you're you have a a pretty minor record if any uh, you have to qualify in other ways and so it represents as you say an escape hatch a way to stay the consequences assuming you behave yourself going forward in the ways that we care about isn't that right Exactly. That's exactly the balance. And, you know, from the point of view of the district attorney in Brooklyn, Eric Gonzalez, who was keeping this diversion program going, it was a fairly controversial thing to do. The cops, they don't like this program. They feel like when they arrest people for guns, they want that person locked up. Um, They want zero tolerance. So the D and the DA also has to worry about the one person. And this, I should say, hasn't happened. Of course, it always could. The one person in the program who is out and shoots someone. Right. Um, we constantly, right, we have a lot of bad criminal justice policy gets made in response to one high-profile violent crime because it makes everyone very risk-averse. So this diversion program is continuing in Brooklyn kind of despite um, the police and the potential for a bad headline. Um, and it was just really interesting to me to watch young people go through it and see how it benefited them. But also, it, you know, like all things, it was not perfect, um, especially because the police really seemed to target some of the young people in the program. Absolutely. And one of the things, the points that you make is that the gateway into this diversion program is very much Uh, of a piece with this idea of great power for prosecutors. Uh, It may be exercised for good or for ill, like the old superpower thing always is, um, but it's up to that prosecutor in that courtroom to decide whether this defendant gets in it or not. Uh, It's not a judge deciding. Exactly. And that's another way in which the prosecutors just had all the power in my story, right? Like I could see them being the ones who got to weigh all of this. Now the judge has to sign off on the guilty plea, but in reality, it's a much more passive role. Yes. So uh, Eric Gonzalez, does he represent this kind of uh, newer wave of prosecutors uh, that you talk about in the book, change uh, transformative kinds of prosecutors? Yes, he does. He's a distinctive example because he's a career prosecutor. So some of the other people who've been elected on progressive platforms to DA have come from outside the system, or maybe they had been prosecutors and then left. Eric Gonzalez, he's been in the DA's office for his entire career. And yet, when he got elected, he ran um, promising to make the system more fair, to do things like spare immigrants from deportation by lowering the charges against them um, if they'd committed a nonviolent crime. And since he's been in office, one of the ideas he has made central is that diversion, what we were talking about earlier, an alternative should be the norm and blocking people up should really be the exception. And that idea, that's part of um, reframing the whole narrative of public safety, right? By thinking of alternatives, that may help people 
rather than the idea that you take them out of the community and that's the best outcome. Right, because taking them out of the community, unless you really have to because they're damaging the community, taking them out of the community weakens the social fabric. We heard that from one of our guests, the uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. He explained to us how incarceration is really criminogenic. Not just what happens inside prison to the individuals, but how it hurts the fabric of the community on the outside. So it sounds like Gonzalez, uh, despite uh, or maybe because of his long experience as a prosecutor, takes this very different tack and he represents something new that we're seeing in prosecutors' offices. That's right. And I love the idea that you had a corrections official come on and talk about jail and prison being criminogenic, which is Right. Like yeah. That's pretty awesome. And, and another new phenomenon. And, you know, that word, which, you know, uses, I think, the parallel to carcinogenic to make a point, like it really shows the way in which our default, which is to lock people up, can be so counterproductive because they, you know, we know that people come out more likely to reoffend. Often they have problems getting housing or jobs like they're just in more desperate circumstances. Right. And so there's a way in which we have this idea. We put people away to deter crime, but we may actually be adding to it. And it's so important to remember that almost everybody who goes to jail or prison. They're all coming out. That's right. They're all coming out. And and woe unto us if we don't think of that when they go in and, and ask ourselves if it's worth it. That's right. And also, what can we do while they're in to help them change their lives and when they come back out? Absolutely. So the the other story that's really a big focal point in the book is the story of Nora. Am I saying that right? Her name is Nora? Yes, Nora Jackson. Yeah. Tell us about Nora, who lives down in Memphis. Right. So Nora was 18 years old when her mother was brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night. And this is the kind of killing that attracts a lot of public attention. Um, Most of the murders in Memphis, or many of them, involve low-income people. Um, Nora and her mother were, like, middle-class, white people, white family, um, living in a nice part of Memphis. So this killing happens, a terrible killing, and it attracts a lot of attention. And there's no obvious suspect. So the police and the prosecutors send the DNA away to be tested, And in the meantime, suspicions start to land on Nora. She, um, you know, was the kind of teenager who smoked pot. Um, She went out and partied a lot with her friends. And as the lab is waiting to process the DNA, Amy Wyrick, who was the child prosecutor in this case, announces that Nora has been charged with her mother's death. Then the DNA results came back, and they actually excluded Nora. Oh, there my were two God. Un- <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. There were two unknown suspects identified with DNA profiles in um, the blood of Nora's mother. Um, and yet, despite that DNA evidence, the prosecution continues. Nora has a trial, um, and she's found guilty. Uh, the DNA evidence comes to light and Nora's lawyer questioned it at trial, but there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that comes in. A lot of people are called to testify, you know, tell stories that make Nora look like a bad teenager. Um, and, and Amy Wark is a very skilled trial lawyer. So she wins this conviction. Nora goes to prison. She gets a sentence of um, more than 20 years. 
And then on appeal, it turns out that um, Amy Weirich and her assistant at trial did not turn over a piece of evidence that could have helped um, Nora prove her innocence. A and so classic kind of Brady of violation. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, of course, makes it um, of great interest to me. And so then the Tennessee Supreme Court um, overturned Nora's conviction. But that's not the end of her story. It kind of goes on from there. And I chose this story to write about um, in part because it's very compelling and Nora is someone who I reported on over a number of years, but also because Amy Weirich became the elected district attorney in Memphis and in her county. And I wanted to think about like how that happens, especially because Weirich and her office really have a pattern of Brady violations. And I was just really curious about how that can be allowed to continue. And is is she still the DA down there now, Amy Weirich? She is. Um, strangely, there is an eight-year term for DAs in Tennessee. And oh. so Weirich will, is supposed to remain in office until 2022, even though she was elected back in 2014. Wow. So I guess ultimately, eight years down the road, the voters will have their say Uh, Is there any sense that uh, Brady violations are coming under control? Are more of them being discovered under Amy Wyrick? What's happening? Well, there have been additional Brady violations on her watch, yes, and they have come to light. She has actually had to testify in a couple of other cases. Um, But, you know, it's, again, this sort of problem of whether this is an effective way, um, whether the courts really take these problems seriously, whether there's enough incentive for a prosecutor's office to clean up its act. Yeah, and we'll, I guess that remains to be seen down there and elsewhere. So you've got two cases and two d- very different kinds of district attorneys. Um, and uh, you talk some in your book about uh, Whitney Timas. Uh, this is a, a young woman who uh, was a district attorney, an assistant district attorney, I should say, uh, in the New York area, and uh, who has also helped a number of these more progressive prosecutors come to office in the last few years. She's sort of been uh, the executive director of that effort, and she was a guest here in, uh, on Criminal Injustice in, in Episode 70. Tell us uh, what you uh, found about what she does and what you think about it. Well, that's so cool that you've had her on. So, Wendy Thomas works for George Soros, the billionaire, and she latched on early to this notion that you can really change the shape of a local system by electing a different kind of prosecutor. So in 2015, she kind of ran a small experiment where she backed a couple of challengers in um, in the South, actually, in Alabama and Louisiana. And those folks won. And so then Whitney had this idea of like, OK, let's try to take this nationwide. It wasn't just her. There were other people working on this as um, from the donor side. And what they were really doing was tapping into a local movement led by local organizers in cities like Chicago and Houston, where there was a lot of um, unrest and upset with um, with local justice. You know, a lot of Black Lives Matter organizers really moved into this territory. And so what Whitney does now is she considers herself, as she said, to be like the DCCC of DA elections. Right, the Democratic Campaign Committee, correct? Yeah, exactly. So what the DCCC does for Congress is try to identify candidates who might be able to be um, to be elected, uh, then 
poll for them and do some fundraising, really try to elevate their candidacies. And Whitney has the same kind of approach for people she thinks could be progressives um, if they're able to win election as district attorney. And she's had a number of um, victories across the country. And I should say, again, it's certainly not just her, but she is playing this distinctive role in this um, movement. Absolutely. And it's important also to mention that she's backed not just Democratic candidates, but Republican ones, too. And they have lost a few, but they have won many more. She sits at a place where I think we'll see a lot more of this activity as time goes on. Uh, You end the book uh, by discussing 21 Principles for the 21st Century Prosecutor. That's a document uh, from the Fair and Just Prosecution Organization, and we discussed uh, that very document with our guest Miriam Krinsky on Episode 99. Uh, Why end the book with that document? What, uh, to you, made that an important point to make? Well, I felt like this is the kind of book that raises all these problems and questions. And and often in books like this, then you're sort of left to imagine what the solutions might be. That right. What do we so do long. now? Mm-hmm. Right. So I wanted to come up with a kind of blueprint, like, OK, what do we think progressive prosecutors should do? What should that label mean? And so with Miriam's help and a couple other organizations, including the Justice Collaborative and the Brennan Center, we came up with what we think of as like a roadmap for um, folks who want to claim this progressive prosecutor mantle. And what I really see it as is a way for voters to evaluate whether their district attorney is truly a progressive. Um, And then they can think about whether this is the kind of model they want to follow and how they might achieve it. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. She's also the author of Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Emily Bazelon, thanks for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for talking with me. That's it. Stay with us for Lawyers Behaving Badly. We'll be back in a minute. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, which comes to us from the Johnstown, Pennsylvania Tribune Democrat and from alert listener Kelly Adomnik, concerns District Attorney, I'm sorry, former District Attorney Bill Higgins of Bedford County, Pennsylvania. We all know how uniquely powerful prosecutors are. That was the subject of this episode, talking with author Emily Bazelon. Ms. Bazelon was talking about prosecutors doing their jobs according to the law. However, uh, imagine just how powerful a prosecutor might be, what damage they might do if the prosecutor didn't care about following the law. If the prosecutor was willing to break the law for that prosecutor's own uh, personal desires. That brings us to lawyer behaving badly, Bill Higgins, former DA in Bedford County. Former DA Higgins, who held the office for 14 years, used his position to trade the subversion of the justice system 
for sex with drug dealers. That's right. In order to have sex with these women, he refused to go ahead on search warrants that would have implicated them. He engineered lighter sentences for his sex partners. He fixed things so one woman would not have her probation violated in order that he could have sex with her. He told one woman who agreed to have sex with him that she had saved her cousin from being arrested. Some of it was even worse. In order to protect these women trading sex with him, Higgins exposed the names of confidential informants, something that not only interfered with justice, but that could have gotten these informants killed. One of Higgins' drug-dealing sex partners said that she felt lucky because having the informant's identity allowed her to avoid selling that informant any drugs. Higgins revealed confidential informants to protect drug-dealing sex partners or their friends not just once, but nine times in two years. The state police and other law enforcement did a two-year investigation that finally nailed this scumbag lawyer behaving badly, hitting him with 31 charges, including 11 counts of obstruction of law enforcement, nine counts of intimidation of a witness, six counts of hindering prosecution, three counts of recklessly endangering another person, two counts of official oppression. In April of 2018, Higgins accepted a plea deal from the state attorney general's office, which was handling the case, and Higgins resigned. He was also disbarred. In August of 2018, Higgins was sentenced to 120 days of house arrest, eight years of probation, 1,125 hours of community service, and $9,700 in fines. No jail time. None. This was apparently part of the deal with the state attorney general's office. No jail. Though Attorney General Josh Shapiro called Higgins' crimes a betrayal of justice when he announced the charges, and he was surely right about that, his office justified this sweeter-than-sweet plea deal by saying that Higgins had agreed to resign immediately and that a long trial process or an administrative and legal battle to remove Higgins from office would have taken forever, and in the meantime, the system in Bedford County would have been paralyzed. Sorry, no sale. I am not buying this. The state police appear to have built a rock-solid case. Solid enough for the authorities, including the attorney general's office, to publicly indict a 14-year incumbent. Go to court. Let him try to stay in office and resist calls for resignation after you convict him. I'm sorry, house arrest for using your prosecutorial power to force potential defendants to have sex? That is a form of rape. And disclosing the names of informants nine times? For this, you get house arrest? I invoke the name of our show, for this is criminal injustice. And that is lawyers behaving badly, really badly. And that closes another episode of the Criminal Injustice Podcast. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. 
check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Why don't you call it in? Ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact info, but we won't share that. Again, that number is 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris. Back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. The American criminal justice system is all about finding the bad guys, convicting them, and penalizing them, often by sending them to prison. But what does that do to help victims restore themselves? Can we imagine a system not of criminal justice, but restorative justice? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Criminal Injustice.